All right, we're going to be in Judges 11, and we're going to be picking it up uh, really in verse 29, but I want to start reading in verse 28 just to pick up some of the context from last week. So I'll start reading uh, in verse 28, Judges 11. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter! You have brought me very low, and you have become a cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. If you want to put a header over these verses and something we're going to explore in depth uh, in our time tonight um, is this. It's a death that accomplishes nothing. Um, something that makes this text so somber towards the end of it is that there's, there's victory, there's kind of a highlight, but the thrust of the whole text is not really the victory over the Ammonites. In, in fact, the author even kind of departs from that story to introduce to us uh, an idea that on his way towards this victory, Jephthah makes a vow. And it seems that the victory of the Ammonites is almost a footnote. And this vow really becomes kind of the, the whole center point around which the whole story uh, moves. And there's, there's so much that, that's going on in this text, so many moral questions we can ask. Um, and for the sake of making sure we can get to those and addressing kind of the elephant in the room of this vow, um, we're going to move through the text, uh, kind of take the highlights, take the big pictures away, and then ask some of the hard questions of it. So the first thing you notice, just picking up from last week, is that Jephthah was in this conflict with the Ammonites. He's now the leader chosen of Israel to go before them as their representative and to defeat the Ammonites in battle. And last week we saw some kind of diplomatic effort of them to make sure uh, maybe a battle could be avoided or a war could be um, averted. And that doesn't work. That's the very first verse that I read, that all of these efforts put forth by Jephthah, the king of the Ammonites ignores them, and the people of the Ammonites say, no, we're not going to listen to you, we're not going to listen to your case, we want to go forward with this war. 
And so this leaves the Israelites really no choice. They have to defend their territory because the Ammonites have encroached on it and now they're demanding this land. So the Israelites have to defend the territory that, that is theirs. And it's, it's in that light that you get verse 29, which is that the Spirit of the Lord is now upon Jephthah. And it's on him, you'll notice, as he's passing through these territories to go to war against the Ammonites. That phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, we've seen it once before in Judges. It goes with Othniel, when the Spirit of the Lord falls upon him. We've also seen it in the case of Gideon, where the Spirit of the Lord falls upon Gideon in order for him to have victory. Um, you'll see it one more time in the book besides here, which is with Samson. He's the other judge that this phrase is commonly associated with. And this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord on Jephthah, is not then a wholesale endorsement of everything that follows in the text. You'll notice that the Spirit of the Lord happens to fall on him, and it talks strictly about his victory, and it kind of has that parenthetical outtake, but the Spirit of the Lord is on him as he's having victory over the Ammonites, and then the rest of the text is kind of silent as to God's disposition towards these things. And is there a reason it's silent is because the rest of Scripture is so clear about what God's take is on those issues. Um, so the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he goes to war against the people, and then just to skip over that, that parenthetical outtake and into kind of the, the body of the action, uh, if you look down at verse uh, 32, Jephthah crosses over against the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gives them into his hand. There's almost no uh, difficulty to this victory. He has a very swift defeat of the Ammonites. And you'll notice once again the language that we've been pointing out the whole time we've been moving through judges, is that these are not judges with military power. This is not Israel being more powerful than other nations. This is God giving these people into their hand. This is God giving the victory, God whose spirit moves in Jephthah, God who's responsible for the, the glorious victory, which is unlike what's going to be, uh, what's going to come after the victory as highlighted uh, later in this text. And you notice that uh, as Jephthah wins, he strikes down not just that army, but he also takes possession of additional territories of the people. This is similar to the first time when the Amorites faced off against them, the cross-reference we looked at last week where the Amorites go against Israel, and then when Israel defeats them, they also possess the territories of the Amorites. It's almost like they've surrendered the land that, because they went to war against Israel, they've almost surrendered the land that they had previously. And you'll notice Jephthah does the same thing. He doesn't just push them back. He kind of wholesale defeats them, takes their army, takes their strongholds, takes uh, their cities. And it's it's partially because in, in committing this crime, they've forfeited their right to this land. They forfeited their, um, their autonomy over it. So the Ammonites are subdued then before the people of Israel. And then the story takes kind of that, that sharp turn that was alluded to earlier, which in verse 30, you'll notice Jephthah is said to have made a vow to the Lord. It's almost like he's making a bartering deal, right? If you give me victory, then I will offer to you the very first thing that I see out of my house when I come back. And there's some ambiguity in the text as to whether he's referring to a thing like an animal sacrifice or whether the text uh, says whomever it is that, he, that gets offered. Uh, the reality is the text is uh, ambiguous enough where he could have said whomever, which means he could have had the, the possibility, at least of a human in mind. Um, and we know based on what, what unfolds in the text that he at least seems to have been fine with that possibility in the fact that he actually follows through with um, taking the life of his daughter. But you'll notice that this, this bartering vow is not something that's present elsewhere in scripture from any of the judges uh, who preceded him. It's not present in Joshua. It's not present in Moses. And you'll notice that it's not even required in this case because when, when Jephthah is elected as the, the forerunner for Israel, the one who's going to go and lead them in victory, God says, you're going to have victory. 
So by the time here he's now bartering with God, it seems as though he's almost trying to uh, get a stamp of approval or a seal on the victory. And he's appealing not to Christian uh, or, or, or uh, he's not appearing to the morals of God. What he's appealing to is, is pagan practices of gaining victory. I will sacrifice to you something of value to me, and then you give me something of value that I also desire as well. And in this, he's almost bartering with God. And this is not a habit picked up from, from God. This is not from Moses. This is from the people who they live with. And so he, he makes this vow. You'll see he then gets the victory. Um, and then when he comes home, the very first thing that he sees, the, very, the thing that's committed in the vow is his daughter. And you'll notice uh, some language that's pretty, pretty specific. It says that she is his only child and that he has neither son nor daughter besides this one. And that language will elicit for you several pictures in scripture. It will elicit to you uh, going backwards, the, the language of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice that happens there when Isaac is demanded as a sacrifice by God as the only child of Abraham, really the only heir to his throne at that point. And then you also can go forward to the language of the only son of God who's offered as a sacrifice, right? The one and only son. And th so this language, I think, is intentional by the author of Judges to bring to light some questions, bring to light some imagery for us. But unlike both the Abraham and Isaac story and the story of Christ on the cross, you'll notice that this story kind of has a whole uh, air of tragedy about it in that um, Jephthah seems to almost regret that he's going to do this. The daughter seems to mourn and weep over the fact that this is going to take place. And nevertheless, there's this kind of like somber inevitability. And then finally, the, the sacrifice happens. She's offered as a burnt sacrifice to God um, by Jephthah. And I, know, I noted there that the text seems to not comment one way or the other whether God seems to be okay with this or not. But I think that's because so much else in Scripture, not after this, but before this, is clear about what's happening, that there's very little commentary needed. The author of Judges can kind of tell us what's happening and then allow us as readers of Scripture to say whether this was right or wrong. And I'll point you to a few texts uh, that, will, that will bring that to light. The first one is in Leviticus chapter 5, and it's just two verses. So if you'll turn there with me. And it says this, it says, uh, sorry, verses four through six, yeah, of Leviticus five. It says, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So you'll notice in this, Leviticus is, is giving a category before Jephthah makes the vow, that if someone makes a vow and they realize after they've made the vow under conviction that it was a wrong vow, that it was a rash vow, that there is a means of atonement and, and backing out of the vow. And you'll notice that Jephthah ignores this because in the text he says, I can't, I vowed it, I can't undo this vow. And his daughter almost submits to that rationale. And so in scripture, we have a case though, in, in case law here in Leviticus, where he says, if you usher a vow or you swear a vow that you realize later was sinful, then you atone for the sin of the vow that you've committed. You don't carry on through with it as if somehow that's going to justify the wickedness of it. So in case law in Leviticus, we have an example where Jephthah, if he just knew it well enough, he could have just backed out. 
but it seems like he's prioritizing his religious zeal um, as if God is a pagan God and not a God who's clearly laid out in his law what he is like and what his uh, morals are. And then the other text that I think is pretty clear on this, and this one could not be more clear, I think, is Deuteronomy chapter 12. And this one's just one verse, but it's very telling. And if you look at chapter 12 and verse 31, to the very end of chapter 12. He says these words, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And you notice this is a warning against idolatry in that God is saying, don't worship me like the idols of the peoples around you. And one of the things that marks idol worship as opposed to faithful worship of God, idol worship is marked in many cases by human sacrifice, whether that's young sons and daughters or older sons and daughters. And in this case, Jephthah seems to worship God more like he's a pagan God than like he's the God as is self-revealed in scripture. And so I think there's many things that we can learn before we get into the sacrifice idea that's present here. And, and one is that when scripture clearly tells us how God has told us to worship him, we don't have room for speculating on what might be even more favorable for God, which Jephthah seems to take much liberty with here. He says, I think based on my surrounding circumstances, my culture, my experience, that this would be a greater way to worship God, even though it's explicitly outlined how to worship God in his law. He says, I think this is a better way to do it. And he goes through with this zeal as if somehow that's going to stir God up into favor towards him. And so even though it's forbidden in God's law to do this, he, he goes forward and does it. And so we can learn a great deal of restraint from, from this regulative principle of scripture, how it tells us to worship God, how it tells us to engage with him. And then I think the other thing that um, is kind of the big question in the room, and, and I pointed this out when I, when I noticed the language of uh, the only child, and that is it, it draws up for us imagery from Genesis 22 of Abram and Isaac. But I think the more telling thing that it draws up for us is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And the question that I, I think about a lot with, with this text is, if Jephthah's uh, sacrifice of his daughter seems to be so wicked, so, so wrong, so tragic, then what prevents the sacrifice of Jesus from being just as wrong, just as wicked, just as tragic? Because if we assume that Jephthah has committed a crime by going through with this, and I, I believe that the text is clear that he's in, in violation of, of worshiping God, then how could we not then get to the New Testament and say, well, God is just as sinful as God is just like Jephthah and that he offers up his only child as a sacrifice somehow to obtain favor with God. How do we resolve that tension? And this is uh, a, lot of, a lot of questions get asked like this about the atonement. Is it, is it right that God has committed Christ to death for the sake of sinners? And I think the real big difference between the sacrifice here and the sacrifice that happens in the New Testament with Christ is that that word phrase right, I give you right at the beginning is that this death is a death that accomplishes nothing. And that death is a death that must have occurred to accomplish a great number of things. So in the New Testament, we're told that Christ must die as a substitute for sinners in place for sin. And because his death is required and necessary and that it actually has an effect and that it accomplishes things, that death is, while tragic, yet still just 
it's, it's still a good thing to have occurred because without it, we, were, we would be lost in our sin. If you contrast that here, this death is tragic, it's, it's sad, and it, it does nothing. There, there's nothing, it, this is just Jephthah pretending to worship God, but he doesn't have to kill his daughter. And the text makes that clear. And so his daughter accomplishes nothing through her death, and he accomplishes nothing by putting her to death in this sacrifice. And I think that's, that's the real thing that's, that's key about the New Testament uh, sacrifice of Christ, is that that is the thing that moves the needle from life to death for believers. The theological phrase for this is called the penal substitutionary atonement. That when we look at the atonement, we don't want to shy away from all the brutal parts of it as, as though somehow that uh, deals with or, or absolves God of, of the problem that's, that's presented there. A lot of people look at the atonement and say, we, God, God is wrong for having sacrificed Christ. If it was necessary, maybe, maybe Christ was sacrificed as a demonstration of God's love. He didn't need to die. The death didn't accomplish anything salvifically, but it just demonstrated God's love for people. And if that's the case, God is like Jephthah in that the death accomplishes nothing. It is a demonstration of some kind of zeal or love, but it, it doesn't move the needle in any way. So the only way you absolve God of the cruelty of the cross is for the, for the death to actually have been necessary. If it was the only way, then it's a right death and it's a just punishment, even though it's tragic. And if it wasn't necessary, if there was any other way for it to have been done, then God is culpable for having crucified Christ like that. And so I think that as Christians, when we look at this text, it should draw to our mind questions that we should ask when we get to the New Testament. Is the death necessary? Is the death required? And if we, if we say yes to all those things, then God is still just and merciful and, and seated on high and good. But if his death is not required, if that's a tragedy that could have been avoided and might have been possible to avoid, then God is very much like Jephthah is painted here. And so I think that this gives us a lot of, uh, a lot of parameters around how we look at the death of Christ in the cross, that we have to say it was required. We have to say it was necessary. And if we don't, if we, if we want to somehow get around that and say, well, his death didn't accomplish anything because that somehow makes it seem like God has put himself in a box, then we have to conclude that because God still allowed that to occur, that he's just as, as sinful as Jephthah. And we, we certainly won't say that, right? Scripture does not allow us to go to that point. So um, as we ponder these things, I, I'm lo- looking forward to the discussion tonight, but let me just close in a word of prayer and then we can get into it. So, Father, we thank you for your word um, and all of the um, beauty and, and glory that, that is in it. Um, or we thank you for... Uh, the wonderful truth that's revealed in Scripture, um, handed down to us from from ages past. Um, And Lord, I pray that we would be slow as we meditate on these truths. Uh, We would be careful uh, when we contemplate your goodness and your holiness and um, restrain ourselves when we speak about things that have to do with uh, Almighty God. Um, Lord, would you give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the truth and the glory of your word. We ask and pray these things in your name. Amen.